Father, it is indeed our prayer that we would have a closer walk with you. We ask that through your Holy Spirit, through your word, that you will make what we have just sung a reality. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Please be seated. How do you typically picture Jesus? I don't mean physically, but just the, the thoughts about Jesus that come to your mind, about who he is and what he does. Most of the time, I think the, the image of Jesus that's most common is, is the one of gentleness and kindness and compassion, meekness. And, and that's certainly true. That's uh, a, a, a big part of who Jesus is. But there is also uh, another side of Jesus that we see in the Gospels. Uh, a side of, uh, of humanity and, and how he responds to people and not always with that kind of gentle, meek, mildness that we often picture. We have one of those instances here in, in the Gospel of Mark in this eighth chapter of the story. Jesus is, is talking with the Pharisees. And they've asked him a, another uh, frustrating question. And what's his response? Mark says he, he sighs deeply. You know that. You've done the sigh, right? You've done it with your children or with your parents. Maybe not in their presence, but you've done it with them. Rolled your eyes. You've done it with uh, students. You've done it with professors. You've done it with teammates or a roommate, a spouse. Now, we, we've all done the sigh. You know, we, we know that. We know that, that experience of being so frustrated. That that's all we can do. You know, we don't want to say something that we shouldn't say. And we don't want to do something that we regret. So we just sigh. I cannot believe it. You know, it communicates so much. You don't have to say anything. That sigh communicates everything. And Jesus has that kind of exasperated response to the Pharisees. And, and it, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't expect otherwise with the way they treat him. We would expect him to be exasperated with the Pharisees. They're against him. They're continually working against him. They reject him. They're continually testing him and pushing him to the limits and trying to trick him. Of course he's going to become exasperated with them. But you know what worries me when I read this story? It was when you move on to the next part of, of the story with Jesus and his disciples in the boat, I get the feeling that Jesus is just as exasperated with them as he is with the Pharisees. And what frightens me about that is that Jesus is exasperated with these men who are close to him. These men have spent a lot of time with him. They have listened to him teach. They've watched him perform probably hundreds of miracles and he looks at them and he says, they, you still don't get it. And then he asks them a penetrating question. Are your hearts hardened? Are your hearts hardened? 
And what scares me to death about that is that I'm a follower of Jesus. Is it possible that Jesus would ask that question of me as he does the disciples? And if you're a follower of Jesus, it, it ought to frighten you a little bit. Might Jesus ask that question of you as he does the disciples? Is your heart hardened? And what it tells us is that, that we need to always be thinking about the condition of our heart. We need to be, to be contemplating and examining our heart. Is it hard or is it soft? How are we responding to God when he speaks to us? Is Jesus exasperated with us as he is the disciples? And the only solution I know to, to preventing a hard heart is to work at trying to make our hearts soft. And as we read this story and as we, as we examine this encounter that Jesus has with his disciples, I think there are some, some elements here that I think are important for us to practice. As we think about living with hearts that are soft to God and to what he wants to do. One of the first things we see is that remembering what God has done helps us live with softened hearts. I don't know if you're a forgetful person or not. I have been a forgetful person most of my life. I'm sure my mother could tell you many, many stories of things I forgot. I remember particularly being in eighth grade and playing in a, uh, a trumpet quartet for a solo ensemble contest that it was in the city where we lived. We practiced for months. Now, I was not a very good trumpet player. I don't know how many chairs were in our junior high band, but whatever the last one was, that's where I sat. If it was five or eight, I don't remember, but it was the last one. I remember it was a long ways to the guy who was the first chair. But we, we, we were in this ensemble, four of us who were in eighth grade, and of course, you know, in a junior high, the school was K through eighth grade, so we were the big shots of the school, and... You know, we, we were practicing for this ensemble day after day for weeks and months. And, and most noontime, we'd go eat lunch and we'd go back to the band room and we'd practice for a while. And, and I remember the night when the phone rang and my mom said, Wes, the phone's for you. And I went to the phone and it was my band director. And his question to me was, so you coming tonight or not? Oh, I can't believe it. I totally forgot. We'd practice at noon that day. We talked after school about what we were going to wear and where we were going to meet. Three hours later, totally forgot. I spent a couple of weeks trying to, uh, trying to ignore my band director and uh, trying to soothe my three friends who were very upset at how all they had done and sitting there waiting for me and not being able to compete. I do find it interesting that I don't ever remember forgetting a baseball game I was playing in or a... Uh, or even a practice. So it might tell you something about what was important to me. Probably why I don't play the trumpet anymore. But you know, it, 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 can, be, it can be painful and devastating to forget things. But how much more when, when we are forgetful about Jesus? And it's not so much that we're going to forget all about Jesus. I doubt if any of us may, would, are going to just completely forget Jesus. But we might forget 
his character and his nature and what he's done. You know, the disciples are in the boat with Jesus and and they're upset because all of a sudden they realize they only have one loaf of bread for the whole group of them. And they become panicked about it. And, and you can just see Jesus looking at them, shaking his head. And I don't think he would probably say this. We might, but I'm, he probably didn't say to them, are you guys idiots or what? Did, did I not just feed about 10,000 people with a few loaves of bread? And he asked them, okay, let's, let's review. How, we've, I fed 5,000 people. How many loaves did I have? Five. I just fed 4,000 people. How many loaves? Seven. Don't you think I can handle 13 of us? And you can sense his exasperation with them because already they've forgotten. And he says, are your hearts hardened? Are your ears deaf? Are your eyes blind? And it's so easy for us to forget what God has done. And in the forgetting, our hearts become hard to God. It's one of the reasons when you look at the Old Testament, God establishes many ways for his people to remember. He establishes special days. Once a week, everything stops and they come to the temple and they worship God and remember. Once a year, everything stops And they come together and they remember that they were slaves in Egypt and God rescued them. Every seven years, they don't plant crops because they remember everything they have is from God. And they remember that God cares for them and takes care of them even when they don't plant for a year. And on and on, the sacrifices and the gatherings are intended to remind them of who God is and what God has done. And they so easily forget. Let's read through the pages of the Old Testament again and again. They forgot, they forgot, they forgot, they forgot. And it keeps driving them further and further away from God. And Jesus calls his disciples to remember. Remember the things I've taught you. Remember what I've done. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. And we need to be reminded because we have such short memories. We forget what God has done for us years ago, months ago, weeks ago, yesterday. We are so susceptible to spiritual amnesia. We need to continually remember. I think that at the heart of of God wanting us to remember is is his giving us what what the church has called through the centuries, the means of grace. They are a means of, of channels of experiencing God's grace because they help us remember. Prayer. Corporate and private. And the reading of the scriptures and hearing them and meditating upon them and and receiving the Lord's Supper and fasting and corporate worship. All of these are intended to help us remember who God is and what God has done. I mean, coming together every Sunday 
It's a means for us to be challenged anew for who God is and for what God has done in our lives, in our world, and throughout history. We're reminded because we so easily forget. And the means of grace also help us remember who we are. That we are bent, greedy, self-absorbed people who need Christ. And we never outgrow our need for Christ. Our need to remember in order to soften our hearts for the word of God to us. If we forget, our hearts can become hardened and calloused to the truth of God, what he's done and what he wants to do in us. And as we remember, we are reminded that God calls us to surrender to him and to his ways. You know, we are masters at shaping God in our own images. We love to create rules about how God acts and about how God, uh, the standards by which God works, what he does and what he doesn't do. We are continually putting God into a box shaped in our own image. And, and we, we begin to, to canonize the peripheral things of God. And so we, and those are most of the things that we argue about. Most of the things we argue about as Christians are, are not the essentials. We argue about the non-essentials. Because we have come to the conclusion that that's the only way God can work or God could never work that way. And so you'll hear people in the church say, well... God doesn't heal people. God doesn't do miracles anymore. Or you hear the other extreme where people will say, if only, only if God does a miracle will we know he's present. And of course we have very limited uh, definitions of miracles. Or we say, okay, if God doesn't give me this job or, or allow me to be in relationship with that person or get me to that position, then he's not doing what he's supposed to do. And we forget that maybe God has bigger, greater plans than we have. And sometimes we will say to people, unless you say these words, then you can't really be a Christian. Forgetting that God works in us in more ways than we can dream or imagine. We put God into boxes with our own preconceived ideas and we limit God and the way he can work. And then when God acts in a way that doesn't fit our ideas, we say, well, that can't possibly be from God. And we miss out on so much of what God is doing. And our hearts become hardened to the ways that God is working that are outside of our box. And when the Pharisees come to Jesus, they ask for a sign. A sign from heaven, which is a bit redundant because I think they would agree that any sign, that miraculous sign would have to be from heaven. But they ask that because they're looking for something particular. They want Jesus to give them a sign that will affirm them as, as the special people of God and their enemies as the enemies of God. They want something from Jesus that will affirm everything that they believe. Because their mindset about God is so small. Now, the typical ways in which God works, most certainly. 
But again, we become more concerned about, about canonizing the peripheral things. We make those the litmus test about whether God is at work here or not. I'm coming to think that the normal way God works is the abnormal. The, the most common means of God revealing himself to us are in ways that are unusual to us. And I think that God wants to take us off on an unfamiliar and uncomfortable path in order just to see if we'll surrender to him. However he leads and wherever he leads. And I think we can judge, at least to some degree, the malleability of our hearts by how easily we surrender when God leads us to unfamiliar and uncomfortable places. I think we often think of God like a vending machine. Everything's enclosed. I'm thinking in particular of a vending machine that, that you see that has chips and candy. It's all glass in, in the front and you can see everything in front of you. And, and everything is stacked up in these little spirals. You've seen those. And you put in your dollar and you push C3 and you watch it begin to spin and your chips get closer and closer. But I find that often God stops the spinning just before the chips fall. And what do we do? We're banging on the thing. We're yelling at it. We're shaking it, trying to get what we want. Because after all, we did what we were supposed to do. We put in our money. We pushed our button. God should give us what we want. That's how it works. Never realizing that what we want may not be best for us. That what God wants for us is probably not even enclosed in that machine. And a hardened heart is, wants to control God. A soft, malleable heart wants God to control us. And then we see here that Jesus warns us about the kinds of influences on our hearts. And we need to be careful to avoid the negative influences that can so easily harden our hearts. And give us false images and pictures and ideas about Christ. And we're called to be witnesses to the world for Christ and And you can only be a witness if you spend time with people who need to see and hear. And so we're continually walking that fine line of being with people who need to see and hear and influencing them without allowing them to influence us. And sometimes it's a difficult, it's a difficult tightrope to walk. But I suspect that probably the most dangerous negative influence on us is not from outside the church, but it's from inside the church. It's from people who who claim to speak for God, but do so in a way that doesn't really reflect the the heart and, and the mindset of Jesus. Jesus warns the disciples to be careful of the yeast of the Pharisees. I think he wants them to understand that, that these religious leaders, they, they carry a lot of power and, and, and have a lot of influence. 
And there are people all over Israel who, who admire them and who, who would love to be like them because they have the power and they have the influence and they have the wealth. And Jesus says, be careful of their influence. And you get the sense that Jesus is worried that maybe the disciples' concern in the boat has something to do with the Pharisees' conversation with Jesus a few moments before. Already from the, from the time between this miraculous feeding and, and them being in the boat, the instance that's taken place is this conversation with the Pharisees where they ask Jesus for a sign, they test him, and he won't do it. And maybe the disciples went to the boat scratching their heads thinking, yeah, why didn't Jesus give him a sign? What's up with that? And already the subtle influence is beginning to creep into their minds and their hearts. That's what yeast does. You, know, you, you put yeast in the bread. Now we think of yeast as, as a positive thing. We put yeast in the bread and that's what makes it rise and make it light and airy and much more pleasant to eat. But the yeast that of the first century was, was typically different than that. It would, as they made the dough for that week, they would cut off a part of it and set it aside. And then through the course of the week, they would add different kinds of juices to it to, to ferment it. And that was how they made their yeast. And then when the next week came along, they would put that into that bread, mix it together, and then cut off another piece for the next one. And it was fine, except that sometimes that, that bit of bread that was set aside that was fermenting went bad. And if they didn't notice it, it would be put into the dough and made into the bread, and it would be a big problem. And Jesus is saying, which ki- asking which kind of yeast is going into your dough. Because the yeast of the Pharisees is going to harm you. My yeast is going to help you. Which yeast is being put into your heart? And he's asking us the same question. What kind of influences are, are we following? What people are we listening to? What voices have the most influence upon us? You know, once yeast gets into the bread, it's pretty hard to get it back out again. It's there. As you think about, as you think about your heart and your life... What kinds of influences are you listening to? I don't think that we I don't think that we're worried about people trying to talk us into denying the divinity of Jesus or turning our backs on God, but but maybe about who God is and and how God views us in this world. Maybe we're listening to voices that that are causing us to question God's love for us and God's perfect plans for us. Maybe we're listening to voices that are causing us to to have a skewed view of, of how we view the world and the needs and the burdens of the world. Maybe we're listening to voices in the church that are that are causing our hearts to become hardened instead of soft and compassionate and loving. And we're a community that is concerned with ideas, about learning and teaching and absorbing ideas. And that's how we grow. And and we're grateful for them. 
But are the most significant people in your life leading your heart to be harder or softer toward Jesus? Are the people who influence you inspiring you to risk more or less for Jesus? After you spend time with with the, the most influential people in your life, do you walk away thinking, I want to trust Jesus more or I think I better pull back and protect myself? And let me turn that around. What kind of an influence are we on others? After people spend time with us, are they more or less open to Christ? Because of our influence, are people more or less likely to risk more for Christ? Because of our influence in people's lives, are are people more apt to take steps of faith or to pull back? It seems to me that there's no greater responsibility for our influence than on our children. Important they are to us. And God has given given them to us to to teach them and to, to help shape them. What kind of heart are we creating in them? Is it a heart of openness to Christ and being willing to do whatever Christ wants us to do? Or are we teaching them to be cautious? And safe. Unwilling to risk and step out in faith. Are we, are we teaching them to be judgmental? Are we teaching them to be compassionate? You know, every, every time a, a, a parents bring their children to be dedicated to God. They stand here in front of us. And they, they declare their commitment to everything within their power. Through the grace of God to help this child know God and follow God. And then we stand up and we say... We're behind you. We'll do everything in our power to help your child know Christ. So what are we doing? Are we getting involved in the children's lives? Are we involved in in ministry to children or, or youth? Are we praying for them? Are we loving them, caring for them, spending time with them? What are we doing to influence them positively for the kingdom of God. The influence that we are, the influences that come to us are are so important for for the, the condition of our hearts. You know, when you boil all this down, there's we can't transform our own hearts. We can't soften our our naturally hardened hearts. We can choose to do everything in our power to allow God to soften our hearts for us. We can do everything in our power to prepare the soil of our hearts for God to work in it. To cultivate it and to plant his seed deep within us. As you think about the condition of your hearts about your memory and about the the influences on your life. About your willingness to trust and to surrender to whatever the ways of God may be that He's leading you. Is your heart softer or harder than it's been in the past? 
As you think back a month or six months or five years or 30 years. Is your heart softer to the things of Christ now than it was then? Heavenly Father, we know how easily our hearts can become hardened to you. We know our selfishness, our self-protectiveness. And we ask for you to forgive us. Father, this day, help us to see anything that is keeping our hearts from being softened by you. Father, make us people who have hearts that are soft like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.